right. How are you doing tonight? What's good, Tony? How are you? Good, good. Just kind of relaxing, winding down on a Lord's Day, just um, taking it easy a little bit. That's about what I've been doing today. It's been a good day of Sabbath, a good day of rest. Yeah, I've been restful. Um, I had a dog do diarrhea on me today, so that was a new <laughs> a new experience. Um, our puppy is a little bit ill. She seems to have picked up some sort of stomach bug, but um, taking Dominion, one, uh, one Westie at a time. Yeah, you are. I appreciate yeah. that you're willing just to lead writing with that. Well, hey, you know what? That's that is our family. We are a Westie family, and our Westies are part of that. So that's true, and we're we're pretty open about stuff. So I mean, I, I, maybe I should confess I haven't had a dog go to the bathroom on me in a long time. I think at some point the pot roast story will have to come into play <laughs> on this podcast. This family has a legacy with pets and pot mm-hmm. roasts and like horrible aftermaths. Yes. So, uh, that being said, we're talking about worship tonight. That was a smooth segue. I do try. I do try with the segues. I try to try to just <laughs> so just smooth. jam it right into gear. <laughs> so, um, so we decided to talk about worship tonight as far as um, kind of a couple different things. So we want we want to start it out with kind of a a big overview of some of the the main theological principles that undergird kind of how the church worships. So we have the regulative principle uh, of worship and we have the normative principle of worship. So can you, uh, can you give us a quick definition of each of those? Yeah, sure. And I think it's maybe important to point out that depending on your backgrounds or how involved you are in just kind of processing how we worship God, they may the, people may not even know that there are these kind of two broad camps. So I think it's important right. to kind of mention that. We want to provide a working title because it's been helpful to me as I process through. So in short, basically, the regular principle dictates that worship, especially in the corporate setting, but, but everywhere, should really only include those things which God has expressly permitted or prescribed in the scriptures. And the other side of that coin, which would be the normative principle, would say that you can essentially worship God in any way that you choose, as long as it's not forbidden in the scriptures. You agree with those kind of synopsis? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it should be said, like most people operate with one of these two assumptions, and they may not have any idea that there's a name for that. Exactly. So these are when you know when we're talking about it we're limiting it to corporate worship or to what might be called formal worship formal acts of worship um so we're not necessarily talking about like the worship that happens as part of your everyday life for the fact that you know you know the the sort of cliche phrase is like everything is worship well yeah on, on one level like everything we do brings glory to god and we should be doing everything with the intention to bring glory to god but worship is a specific act it's not just this general thing um so when we talk about worship we're talking about like a specific act of intentionally um explicitly ascribing worth to God. Um, the normative regulative principle that extends to other things too. So, you know, the Puritans talked about like, we can't dance the maypole because there's no command in scripture to dance the maypole. Right. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. So it does extend past that, but we're limiting it to worship tonight. And so just to get our uh, reformed quote, quota finished here, um, this is a quote from uh, John Calvin Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, book four, chapter 10 and section 17. 
Um, and he's talking about um, kind of how different institutions create laws. And he says here, the Lord cannot forget himself. And it is long since he declared that nothing is so offensive to him as to be worshiped by human inventions. Hence those celebrated declarations of the prophets, which ought continually to ring in our ears. I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing Uh, commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you. And so what Calvin is saying here is that um, God desires to be worshipped in a specific way. Um, It's not enough to say that we can just worship God however we choose, but God, uh, not only does he desire to be worshipped in the way that he uh, chooses, but he commands us to worship in the way that he chooses. Um, And he actually, it's pretty strong, but he he despises our worship if we do so in a way that's not what he's commanded. Um, Now we'll we'll get into it and we'll talk about how there's there's kind of a um, kind of a continuum of views on the regulative principle. Um, all the way from no instruments, acapella, psalms only, to um, what you might not even be able to outwardly see a difference between someone operating under the normative principle and regulative principle um, as far as what kind of worship acts they produce, but the philosophy underneath it would be different. So the, the regulative principle really says that we may only worship God in ways that um, he has positively commanded or that we can deduce a positive command by good and necessary consequence. Um, and they, it's called the regulative principle because our worship is regulated by uh, the, the commands of scripture. The normative principle is loosely speaking um, is the idea that we may worship God in whatever way we choose insofar as we're not violating a command that he's given us or violating a prohibition. So we can use smoke screen uh, smoke machines or fog machines in worship if we want because God never said you can't use fog machines you can't use this or that um, and that's a, that's kind of a silly example but if you look you know where Calvin is um, in the Reformation we're talking about and he's specifically talking about can we worship God with statues and icons right. can we worship God with incense and um, can we add things to the worship of God that he hasn't commanded like praying to the saints or venerating uh, the Virgin Mary or utilizing relics so it, it's you know when we talk about it in our context when we're having kind of inner Protestant discussions it may seem like sort of a silly well who cares if there's a smog you know a, a fog machine in the sanctuary kinds of questions Questions, but it really, when you when you look at it theologically, it really kind of like is more expansive and really is a bigger deal than it seems like at first. It's funny you actually bring up the fog machine because I think that the fog machine is like the modern equivalent of the burning incense. Because right, I actually my wife and I visited a church not long ago locally here that did rock the fog machine like pretty heavily. And it was pretty captivating and also pretty distracting. So it was like, dang, there's a lot of fog in here right now. And it (laughs) was a kind of a presentation of worship through music that included that. So we definitely are kind of narrowing the focus to applying this principle of worship, like you said, on the Lord's Day in a corporate setting. And I've always interpreted the regular principle in, in the same way, but to a much lesser extent as I might understand somebody's birthday. So if you have a loved one whom you really appreciate, you kind of respect the fact that 
the birthday, on that day, the person who is of worth to you, the one that you want to honor and to value, they get to dictate the terms of how they feel appreciated and what they'd like to do. We kind of take that to be a given. So if my wife likes to go out for dinner, that's what I want to do, regardless of how I feel about it or whether or not that's how I would like to be appreciated. We respect the fact that they get to determine or regulate, in a sense, the way in which they receive honor. And so you're absolutely right. Calvin was very outspoken about that. I know that he had written on more than one occasion that God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. So that may seem like a very, you know, like a very high wall that kind of fences in worship, but we're all operating, at least all biblical Christians are operating under some sense that God as the sole authority, the one who's worthy of worship, the one who in fact created us to worship with that intrinsic desire that he gets to set the terms. Yeah. And I think we, we all kind of, even when we're talking about our interactions with other people, we kind of instinctively recognize that this is the way things work. Exactly. So, um, you know, you go over to someone's house and you, you know, you let's pretend that you go to someone's house and they have a list of house rules and they print it out and they give it to you. Um, and you look at it and it, it says, you know, take your shoes off at the door. Um, don't feed the dog, uh, people food, um, you know, make sure that you turn all the lights off and a list of rules. Um, we're not talking about any one particular list of rules, but you have this list of rules. Um, it wouldn't really do to um, to pick up a plate off the table and smash it on the ground and say, well, the rules didn't say I couldn't do that. Right. Um, we know that like when someone presents us with a list of directions, they expect us to be bound within those list of directions. Not um, not. That's not like a list of suggestions or a minimal list, unless it says so. Sometimes there's, you know, sometimes you have contexts that say that, but that doesn't really matter for this discussion. And I think that leads us into kind of um, one of the things that we have to talk about a little bit is in reformed circles, we kind of have this this distinction of what we call circumstances and elements. And so an, an element is like a core um, feature of worship that is, um, it's, part of the act of worship and it's it's commanded by god so examples might be um music of some sort um singing to the lord is a command that we have in colossians and ephesians yeah absolutely Um, reading and preaching of god's word is a command that we're given prayer public prayer um corporate prayer is a is a is an element of worship and then um, in reform circles um you know the lord's supper and baptism the administration of the sacraments or ordinances depending on where you fall on that spectrum those are the main um, elements of worship then what we have our circumstances are kind of the things that attend to that worship so um the fact that we sit in chairs versus in pews. That's a circumstance. Um, it doesn't change what we're doing as far as worship. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't add to or or take away from um, those things. Some people would argue differently, but I would say um, whether you sing a cappella or whether you sing with instruments is a, a circumstance of worship. Um, whether you read from a hymnal or whether you sing contemporary songs or whether you sing the Psalms, what you're singing and what we'll talk probably talk about exclusive psalmody a little bit, but what you're singing is a circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, so where it comes in with the regulative principle is we are allowed to use our wisdom um, to determine what the proper circumstances are. Do we, um, do we meet at 
six o'clock in the morning or do we meet at 11 o'clock in the morning? Right. Um, that's a circumstance. Um, what we're not allowed to do is add elements. So um, we wouldn't be able to, for example, do what the Catholics do and add um, add entire features of worship that they would say are required for salvation, like praying to the Virgin Mary mm-hmm. or um, those kinds of things. So does that does that make sense? I mean, that's kind of a complicated category, and I didn't I didn't really understand it until I started kind of studying some of this stuff. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I think there is sometimes a lot of debate over circumstances and it can be nuanced, but I think the scriptures are very clear about the primary or critical elements that should be involved in worship. And we sometimes either denominationally or just in terms of general theological streams get bogged down with the circumstances rather than being concerned with the way things actually are. We get concerned with how they appear or the kind of tangential or stuff that lies outside the center of the circle. And yeah, I mean, that can cause all kinds of problems, all kinds of divisions. I mean, when you talk about worship and then more specifically worship through music, even just style, of course, can divide people and churches. And that can become a discussion that's way more heat than light. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the word legalism has a lot of different meanings, but I think in terms of um, worship, uh, musical worship particularly, but really all of our worship in, in the church, um, in corporate worship, sort of these formal acts of worship, really where legalism comes in is where you confuse circumstance and elements. When you start treating circumstances like they were elements, exactly. that's when you exactly. um, that's when you cross the line into legalism. And the the question of whether we um, whether we're commanded to sing psalms or whether we're commanded to sing um, human composed songs as well. Um, that question aside, um, a lot of times what you see is churches will, some churches will say, well, we can only sing hymns. And if you don't sing just hymns, um, then you're, you know, you're not really being obedient to God's command. Or they'll say like, well, if you don't sing contemporary songs, then you're not being obedient to God's command. And that, that right there, both of those are legalistic positions, if you ask me, because we don't have anywhere in scripture that commands us to sing a specific kind of song, um, we have a command to sing. Um, you know, I, I, there are a bunch of exclusive psalmody people that are turning off the podcast right now. And that's fine. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that the commands that were given, um, by Paul are to sing spiritual songs and he gives us different kinds of songs that he's, um, using that were references to, um, common styles of songs of his day. And so he right. gives us these three, um, these three categories, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And all three of those were common, um, vernacular, meaning like the, the songs of the common person. And so I understand that command as sing songs that the average person off the street could sing. Um, sing songs that are in the common style of the day. And so you may, you can make an argument to say that if you're not singing songs that the average person could sing, um, then you, or that you could train them to sing, of course, um, then you're not really fulfilling that command. Um, And that's, you know, we can maybe go there now, but that's, that's, that's how I get my understanding of that passage um, rather than the exclusive psalmody position that says, well, it says sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and understands that three, those three references as references to different types of psalms. Um, 
meaning seeing seeing psalms of this kind, psalms of this kind, and psalms of another kind. And there's a right. complex linguistic argument that goes behind that. Um, and I respect that position. Like I don't want to say that people who have that position are um, schismatic or evil or bad. Um, although some of them would say that kind of thing about um, people who don't hold that position. I don't want to, I don't want to be legalistic about it. I don't think the command is, is restricted to just Psalms. Um, So I don't want to go that route, but we have to be careful because this is a discussion. And I had to catch myself because I very, I, I almost made a normative principle there. Right. right. I almost said, well, we don't have anywhere that says we can't sing um, contemporary songs, but that's not, I mean, that's a, that's a very, easy thing, an easy mistake to make when you're trying to adhere to the regulative principle, you very quickly flip over into the normative principle without even realizing it. It's easy to do. For And for the record, the Reform Brotherhood podcast loves our exclusive somnity, brothers and sisters. We, yes, full, we do. Full support. Because I think we both would recognize that intent always precedes content. And these there are people from different streams of thought who are really trying to understand how best to praise the Lord. And I agree with your interpretation of Ephesians 5.19, which where Paul is, I think, just using words that provide context to his day and age in exactly the way that you, you reference them. The problem is those words, of course, mean specific things in English. And their listing seems to be imply that there's some kind of exclusive group. So I've often had people say to me, you know, we'll sing a, a hymn somewhere and somebody will give kind of a resounding amen and quote this verse. And so I always used to like to ask, like, well, what, what do you think Paul was talking about? He's talking about like Fanny Crosby or Isaac, you know, Isaac Watts. <laughs> like it, everything is contemporary at some point and right. everything is new at some point. So you have to juxtapose this really against even the Psalms where, you know, David says, sing to the Lord a new song. So it's almost as if God who is in control of not only sound and making it by design to be music, which is such a blessing and a form of worship to him and encouragement to us, but also that he's Lord of the seasons. And so that means as well that he anticipated that music would change, the sounds, the instrumentation with which we express that music would change. But of course, the theology, which we should be, which should be imbued in all of our music and expression does not change. And that I think is more the critical thing going back to the difference between elements and circumstances. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good point is, is, you know, Paul was referring to a specific kind of song at the time, right? So um, Calvin actually in his commentary on Colossians, um, I think it's 316, I don't have it in front of me, um, but he's, Paul, you know, in Ephesians, which you just quoted, and then also in Colossians, he repeats that sort of threefold song description where he talks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And there's some question grammatically whether the word spiritual applies to all three kinds of songs or whether it applies to just the, the what's called odes, which is the third kind of song. Um, but Calvin understanding, uh, Calvin's understanding in Colossians is he gives a description of what these songs were. And so psalms, um, commonly speaking, psalms are songs that are played with stringed instruments. Um, and we get that. That's why the book of Psalms is called the Psalms is because they were written by David and David played the lute. And so David wrote all these songs that were written to be played alongside a stringed instrument. The word psalm actually comes from the word 
to pluck. Um, now, it's it's an etymological fallacy to just say, well, the word means pluck, so you have to play it with a plucked instrument. But that's where the word comes from. So that helps us inform a little bit of, of what would have been thought of when um, that word was used. Hymns um, were songs that were praise songs. Um, songs that were praising someone. So in the ancient world, you might have a hymn to Zeus, or you might have a hymn to um, Hercules or Poseidon. Um, so they weren't necessarily hymns that were just um, Christian hymns. And that's that actually bolsters that argument that the word spiritual applies to all three, because we're talking about spiritual songs. And that's the take that Calvin has. And then odes um, were another type of worship song. Um, typically, they were more uh, hymns were usually sung to a deity and odes were usually sung about a deity. So that kind of covers a lot of contemporary music. You have um, you have songs that are sung about God, and we would understand those to be worship songs. And then you have songs that are actually addressed to God, which we also would would um, call worship songs. Mm-hmm. Um, but where where I look at it is. Yes, Paul is using three specific kinds of songs, but those are three common kinds of songs that existed in the day. Um, it would be, I, my understanding is it would be similar to if I said, um, sing to each other in country, um, choral music, and also in hip hop. Now, that would be a really crazy church, but, um, you know, talking about vernacular songs that the average person could sing. That makes sense to me. I, I agree that he's definitely speaking on categorical terms. It would have been interesting if he had said, like, if there was some etymology that was like, just play like hard rock. If yeah. there would be like people as intent in that. Right. Because it is funny to me in some of the expression of this through instrumentation that there's just so much tradition wrapped up in this as well. So there'll be many people that feel very strongly about a more narrow group of, you know, either total somnity or just hymns, for instance. But they're very married to that being played only on like piano or organ, which right. some would argue in another – I mean I guess there's always somebody that's further down the continuum that would say, well, that's not even a proper expression. You got maybe the somnity part right, but clearly this is only like plucked instruments. And there are still churches that have you know, strong feelings one way or the other about guitars, for instance, either electric right. or acoustic. So it's all these circumstances get really messy really, really quickly. I would say the only thing that I have to disagree with you in that statement is the fact that it seems to me that country music is an oxymoron. So I just can't accept that. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Country, semi-organized musical notes. We'll say that. We're just going to alienate everybody on this podcast, like just straight up. Who else can we alienate? And I mean, I I do want to say like even even the most extreme – Extreme is not the right word. Even the most strict interpretation of that passage in terms of exclusive psalmody, um, there are good arguments to be made for acapella exclusive psalm singing. Sure, absolutely. Um, there are really good arguments to be made. I'm not convinced by them, but they're they're good arguments. Um, it's not that the people haven't done their exegetical work. Um, R. Scott Clark has presented some of the most compelling arguments that I've read. Um, there are some really good godly men who believe that what God God has commanded is for the church to worship him exclusively using the psalm book that he's given the church in the Old Testament. Um, now, there are a lot of people that, um, in my experience, have used that as kind of a bludgeon um, to sort of 
discredit their brothers and sisters um, and have actually said, you know, that they've taken some of the strong words that Calvin has used um, to say like, well, the worship that you're offering is detestable to God. When you sing um, a Hillsong song on Sunday, or if you sing a Chris Tomlin song, um, that's detestable to God. It's not just that he doesn't accept it, but it's actually detestable. And there are a lot of reasons why I don't think that Calvin would agree with them. Um, we, we don't have to get into it necessarily, but um, that's a really strong statement. And, and that is, I mean, I'll match it with an equally strong statement. That's downright schismatic. Like that's, that's dividing the church up in a way that is um, between true worshipers and false worshipers. Yes. Um, that's some pretty serious allegations to level at, at other Christians. Yeah, it really is strong language. And, and yeah, at the same time, like you said, I appreciate that our Clark, Clark Scott and others have strong opinions that where they can express these kind of cogent, I don't even say arguments, but just kind of cogent expressions of scripture through exegetical, exegetical work. And I think that helps us all out because they're doing the same thing that we're all trying to do. And that is we know that there should be guides and signposts. We're just trying to establish where they are. Right. And then to really so, flesh that out. So um, maybe we should go and just talk a little bit about the scripture that lays um, behind the regulative principle. Yes, right? let's do this that. isn't just something that came out of nothing. So um, one of the main, it's probably not the best place to go to first, but one of the things that serves as kind of a narrative example of the regulative principle in worship. Um, I, I can, you can tell that we prepare for this way in advance because I don't have any of the scriptures that I want in front of me. Um, <laughs> this but is how we the, do it. There's an account where um, you know Aaron and his sons have been ordained as priests, and one of their tasks is to offer um, an incense offering on the altar uh, in the tabernacle. And he has two sons um, named Nadab and Abihu, and we don't know exactly what it means to offer strange fire, but apparently they offered strange fire. Um, and so God matched their strange fire with his own fire, and fire rushes off the altar and destroys both of them. Um, so that's, that's kind of an example that people point at to say um, Nadab and Abihu worshipped God in whatever way they chose, not in the way that he had commanded, and they were destroyed for it. And there's some interesting linguistics in that passage where it actually does say, um, it doesn't say that they did something they were commanded not to. It says they did something that they were not commanded to. Um, so it actually is emphasizing the fact that what they did wasn't necessarily bad in and of itself. Um, it wasn't, they weren't breaking a commandment except for the fact that God has commanded his people only to worship him as he has prescribed. Um, so that's kind of one of the main narrative portions we look at. Um, there are also some passages in Deuteronomy which are a little bit more explicit. I don't have them in front of me and I don't want to I don't want to paraphrase because I'm not super familiar with them. But Deuteronomy does talk about how God has prescribed for his people different patterns and fashioned different ways to worship that he has has set the boundaries for. He hasn't given them free reign on how to worship. And that's a strong argument to help us remember, again, how serious worship is, that it's not right. something you do half-hearted, it's not something you come into the Lord's courts trampling, that it is serious business and serious work for that matter. And so I, I agree with you, like that is still saying to me that we need to get right the difference again between what are the essential elements, because that is something that we don't want to get wrong. And that passage I've always appreciated, I guess, because it's the strange fire thing. I mean, man, what a great like way to express that. Like, yeah. Again, nobody knows what that means, but it means like they did something clearly like way off the rails, at least, even yeah. though it wasn't that, as you said, like they just stepped into the gap, like they stepped into the open space theoretically. 
right. uh, but still God felt it required to you know consume them with his own fire and I often wonder like what this is definitely off topic but I often wonder like when they stood before the Lord like what the conversation was like if they were like oh yeah my bad and he was like yeah I right. had to do this because you got to understand it's just it's just not right and they were like yeah we get it all right I understand yeah and and you know the the text goes on and um Aaron is you know kind of kind of cheesed off about this understandably like his sons just got just burned alive um and Moses basically says well what do you expect they exactly. worshiped God in a way he wasn't prescribed and Aaron's like well yeah yeah, yeah. Did, right? that's that's true <laughs> um so it, you know they recognize how serious it is and Aaron of all people probably should have been like oh yeah because he was the one that put together the golden calf. So, you know, he's like the, he's like the prime example in the old Testament of someone who worships in a way that's not prescribed. That's, I mean, he's going straight into like, and, and that's actually a really interesting passage because, um, the people tell Aaron to make him make idols of the gods of Egypt and Aaron makes an idol, but he says that it's an idol of Yahweh. Right. So Aaron is is making an idol to worship God in a way that he hasn't prescribed. Um, and so there's there's a lot going on in that passage. But then his sons, which is so often the case, his sons follow in a similar kind of sin. Um, and I, who knows why God didn't destroy Aaron and did destroy um, Nadab and Abihu. I, I don't know. Um, but then this principle is carried into the New Testament. So we see um, Jesus, you know, in his conversation with the woman at the well. And it, again, this isn't a passage that's intending to teach necessarily about um, worship. It's, you know, there's a whole narrative context to it. But in the middle of the, the interaction, they have this conversation about where where true worship happens. And Jesus says to the woman um, that he, you know, she worships what she doesn't know and the Jews worship what they do know. And then it picks up in verse 23, chapter four, verse 23 of, of John. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so, as far as how that plays into the regulative principle is not only is, is our outward activity prescribed by God, but the state of our heart and how we approach God is also prescribed by God. Exactly. So we're not to come, we're not to come before the Lord flippantly or um, casually. Um, that's not to say that corporate worship has to be a super formal affair that we have to, um, you know, everybody's got to wear ties and we have to have all this different liturgy. Like there's, there's entirely a place for a sort of informal, low key um, worship event or worship gathering on the Lord's day that is not um, super formal. But when we come into the Lord's throne room, there still is always a gravity that he's commanded us to have that we need to observe. Yeah, there should always be a holy dread, and there should be this sense that you come in thoughtful and prepared. And so much of what we do, and even in my own life, there's been several times where I've definitely come into corporate worship on the Lord's Day, not just ill-prepared, but completely distracted. And there's certainly a lot that the Lord has commanded us to do in preparation for that that time together. So I'm totally with you on that. By the way, I would say probably the best impression of Aaron's response to what happened in that instance was you going, ooh. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Strange fire. Ooh. Yeah, ooh, that's... <laughs> Not a good choice, guys. No, that's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> but but, that, but then what's interesting, though, is that even though God has... And there's, there's some parallels 
I, and then this just struck me. Maybe I need to study this more. I think there's probably some parallels. You know, this is early on in Israel's history. So if we want to think about Israel as the church of the Old Testament, um, without going down dispensational versus covenantal lines, but the church of the Old Testament, um, early on in the church's existence in the Old Testament, as the corporate gathered people of God, this happens where um, – they come and they do this thing and it's it's detestable to the Lord and he destroys the people and great fear comes over all the people. Um, but then that same kind of thing happens again later in history. You know, they're bringing idols into the temple and they're right. doing all this different stuff and they're sacrificing babies and you don't hear about God striking people dead. Um, Likewise, we get over to the New Testament and Ananias and Sapphira, very early in the church's history, they do something that is detestable to the Lord and they're killed and great fear comes over the church. And um, I think sometimes we look at that and we think, oh, well, nobody's getting struck dead for this now, so it must not be that big of a deal anymore. But mm-hmm. it's a big deal, like how we worship God and how, how he commands us to worship God and whether or not we worship God in a way that is detestable to him or whether we worship in a way that's acceptable to him is um, is a big deal. Now, God sees beyond the action and sees the intention. So I don't want to say someone who worships um, using the normative principle and does something that's not commanded. Um, I don't want to say that God does not look at the intention of their heart and accept the intention of their heart as worship. But that practice is still detestable to him. And that should be something that Christians should really bother a Christian if they're doing something detestable. Um, it should bother them. It should. It, pro- it should really promote us to undertake a great deal of internal reflection, but of course, go to the word. I mean, I think it's just right. God's amazing mercy, like you said, that he doesn't through the ages. He provides examples of his response as if to say, this is truly how you should understand worship. And right. this is how I feel about inappropriate worship. But then in his great mercy, he does allow some of those things to happen again. But it doesn't mean that, like you said, we won't be held accountable for them. So I mean, there's right. several instances, including like a second Samuel, when you know, Yuza reaches out to steady the ark. Um, and just because it is bouncing on the, uh, the cart, and that seems like a reasonable thing to do, and, and God strikes him dead. And yeah. David is really frustrated by that. Yeah, and there's some other stuff going on in that passage too, because he does that, and that certainly is, you know, in the context, it would be absurd to say that that didn't have something to do with it. But then it, it also says because of his error, and it's not talking about him reaching out to grab the cart. True. Um, so, so even in that instance, it seems like there's something else going on in, exactly. in Uzzah's life, and this is just sort of the culmination of his disregard for God's law. Exactly. And this is finally what this is finally the precipitating event where God says enough. Um, Um, And to me, that's kind of terrifying because we don't, you know, there's differing opinions as to whether or not um, Ananias and Sapphira were actually Christians who were killed because they were disobedient in that instance, or whether they were not Christians. Um, I don't think that the text is clear enough for us to know, but, um, and the same goes for Nadab and Abihu, but with Nadab and Abihu, they were part of the covenant community. They were priests in God's service. Um, they were consecrated and ordained by God, directly selected by him. Um, I have a tough time thinking that these were non-believers. Um, and by all accounts, people in the Old Testament who were believers had placed their trust in God to save them. So we have what seems to be an instance of God killing um, believers, I almost said Christians, which would be anachronistic, but killing those who have faith in him for disobedience but not necessarily saying that they're not 
believers or that they're in hell. And for me, that's really scary because could it be the case that my disobedience can bring about temporal consequences, not punishment, because I don't think that God punishes Christians, but consequences that have, you know, have real significant things in my life. Does the way that I worship, does that, is that going to affect other things in my life, even beyond just like the natural consequences of, you know, choosing to think about life in a certain way or think about worship in a certain way affects the rest of my life. But is there actually spiritual elements that are going to bring about, um, that are going to bring about realities in the rest of my life? So you think about when Paul is teaching about communion in first Corinthians, uh, chapter 11, that sounds about right. Sure. Wherever. With it. Um, you know, he said, and he just throws it out there and, it's weird because he just throws it out there like nobody's going to be surprised. But he says, you know, you have to examine yourself to make sure you're properly discerning the body. And then he's like, and that's why some of you have gotten sick and died. He just sort of drops it out right. there and then he moves on to his next point. Almost an and it's like, we think about that. I don't, I know that I don't frequently enough before communion pray and examine myself like my life depended on it. But if we take that text seriously, it does. It really does. Mm -hmm. Now, God has been gracious to me. I don't think that I've ever been made sick. And I know I haven't been killed because I haven't, you know, properly discerned the body. And I can tell you there have been times that I have improperly discerned the body and improperly come to communion when I knew that there was unrepentant sin that I was harboring. Um, But we don't, those are commands that God has given us as part of our worship when we take uh, communion, communion is a is a circum or is an element. That's something we're commanded to do. So even even there are churches that don't do communion, and I can't even I can't even fathom that. But as part of part of the communion element is this self examination. So how often do we neglect that? Right. It all the bottom line is that it's incumbent, I think, upon every believer to do that kind of reflection and right. to really weigh out. I think it'd be great if we all wrestled with our own theology of worship, that we really took it serious, to try to understand what it is that the Lord requires. And also that we put that into good practice because right. the bottom line is, if especially we're speaking about the, that worship and expression of music in particular, that all music is teaching doctrine. Music is also evangelistic by its own nature. So there are consequences for the soul, and there are certainly more consequences if you are in charge of leading a group of people in any kind of worship. Right. Because the Lord is certainly going to look upon that with a severe amount of judgment if, in fact, you're doing something that is not prescribed. So you're right on. It's both scary, but certainly God has promised that when we seek after him and, get, and try to draw into his heart, into the spirit behind all these precepts, that he will be faithful and just to in fact, come with his reasoning for them and to implant in our hearts that proper intent that precedes that good content. But we've got to right. do that. And, and we don't often do that. I think because in some ways, I'd be curious about your perspective on this. I think because we are beings that worship and that we worship what we see glory in, that the unfortunate problem is we've made worship too small and too low. And so the things that we tend to worship in life, whether that's a, a sporting event or a good ballet or even a nice piece of music, that we come at it like very flippantly and very distractedly and not in a very cogent or precise or focused manner. And it just seems like there's no consequences to what we worship elsewhere. But here, the consequences could be very, very severe. And God has made that plain. Now, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that 
even even Christians struggle with self-centeredness. So Luther Luther's term um, for what the reform would call total depravity is the Latin phrase. Um, I think it's incurvatus in se, and that basically means like curved in on yourself. And so his point is that the the unregenerate person is constantly turned inwards on themselves. Everything they do is oriented towards themselves. And even when God justifies us and begins to sanctify us, um, even though sin has has lost its all-encompassing grip on us, we still struggle to look outside of ourselves. And that tracks over to our worship. So, you know, when, when I, you know, when I was younger and I was, you know, trying to find a new church, the first thing, the first question I would ask is, well, how's the worship? How's the, and what I meant is like, is this music something I can get behind? Is this a music style I enjoy? Um, And, you know, I would go to a church and um, I'll be frank, like hymns are not my favorite thing in the world to sing. Um, Our church does, uh, we do some contemporary songs, we do some hymns. Um, Hymns are not my favorite part of the service. And part of it is because I didn't grow up singing hymns and they're not a familiar kind of song. They don't, they're not, you know, they don't sound like a song that you would hear on the radio and they have strange melodies and strange patterns that if you're not used to them, they're very, they're kind of unapproachable. Um, so I would go to a church that only sang hymns and I would say, this isn't the place for me because they only sing hymns and I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's because I was really, maybe not entirely, but I was making part of worship about me instead of saying, well, what what is the reality behind this? I've really come to appreciate hymns because they have, in, in some cases, not in every case, you have your sort of shallow hymns too. But by and large, the hymns that you'll find in a bound hymnal, whichever bound hymnal it is, tend to be much more theologically rich and right much more thoughtful. And they're used, they were used back in the day to teach theology, almost like a second sermon, like a musical sermon that prepared the congregation to hear the word of God preached. And so the the theology of hymns um, is much more robust than you'll get in your average Chris Tomlin song or even like a really good Chris Tomlin song. I'm not talking about like right. God's Great Dance Floor, which is like the shallowest of all songs ever. <laughs> yes, it um, made it into this podcast. That's Oh, I, I've got more. Don't worry. That's my I goal. know I said I'm bad at segues earlier, but don't worry. I can sneak it right in there. <laughs> but seriously, though, like th- there are there are lots of great worship songs, contemporary Chris Tomlin, Matt Redmond kinds of worship songs. Um and that's just talking about like middle-aged white worship writers. There's all sorts of other worship writers. That's just not the ones I'm familiar with. Um, there are good, solid theological worship songs, but even the most theologically deep worship songs still don't usually get as deep as a good classic hymn. Now there are certainly some exceptions. Um, you know, our intro music is before the throne of God, which is probably my favorite yeah, uh, worship hymn. And our hymn. outro music is in Christ alone by the Gettys. So it's like, there are certainly mod, but even those, we call them contemporary hymns. We don't even think of right. them in the same category as Chris Tomlin songs or Matt Redman or whoever the latest um, worship writer is. Right. So I, I think it's important that we recognize that even Christians have this tendency to make worship about themselves rather than remembering that worship is about God. Um, it's not something that we add to God. It's not like he's sitting up there wringing his hands going, oh, man, I hope they worship me the way I want to be worshiped because I really need that boost in my ego. Um, worship is benefits for us. It's a benefit for us and we grow and develop. But ultimately, it's about God and it's for God. Right. There's no doubt that the songs we sing teach us theology. It's really just a fact. So 
with every song we're singing, either it is going to be rich in doctrinal truth or it very well could be riddled with all kinds of heresy. And it, what's funny is I find people very quick to judge the content of preaching, but they often don't apply the same filter to music. Yep. So I often say like some of the stuff we, we sing or is very common or is very popular because there's some sense of emotionalism with it or it has a, very, a wonderful riff or a catchy tune or a really great hook at some points that if we heard that just straight up in a sermon, most discerning Christians would be like, well, that's like light and fluff and that, that, that does nothing. That's not give me the gospel or you know, right. hit, hit me with the true the scriptures, the, the deep things of Christ. And we just have different standards for our music because it's expressed in totally different ways. You know, it's interesting you bringing up the thing about hymns because I find that to be true as well. And our church does do this mix. And they'll try, we often try to reinterpret, at least musically, some of the hymns to kind of provide just a fresh perspective, both right. for the new, new generations of people being exposed to them. Because, for instance, my wife grew up in a church where they didn't sing hymns at all. It was just all contemporary stuff. And so, like, all of the hymnal was a foreign land to her. Like, even, like, like very quintessential or traditional hymns, totally a foreign land. Yeah. But what, what I find interesting is the resurgence recently of let's say like hip hop and rap in particular, that has been something like the hymnal to me, because I do appreciate that style of music when it's good. And um, I guess that was really kind of a thing to say, but what, what I love about that is those that do that really well, like trip, triple E, beautiful eulogy, um, uh, Lecrae, these guys, like there's nowhere to, to hide in rap. Like either it just lends itself to being a more theologically sound expression often because right. it has to be more thoughtful by its definition. It's not just about making good rise or you having something to say that's substantive. Right. So again, God in his infinite wisdom, the way that he moves the seasons with different music, but is feeding the church, the body of Christ with good theology by people who are making really good music and are concerned that it not just sound good, but that it actually be good. I love that. Yeah, and I think it's really insightful what you say about um, how we don't discern our music the same way we would like preaching. And, and I think this is especially true of Reformed Christians because Reformed Christians tend to be tend to be, I'm not trying to like say this, anything about other traditions, but reform, the reform tradition tends to be much more academic and cerebral than some of our, some of our other traditions. And so it's, it's not uncommon for, um, a, you know, a reformed Christian to sit in church and take a, a copious amounts of notes and then go back over his notes and, you know, make notes about what was wrong with the sermon or what he disagreed with. And that's fine. Like, it's totally fine to, um, to do that as long as you're doing it in a respectful way and you're not undermining the leadership at your church. It's okay to go up to your pastor and say, Hey, you know, I had a question about this. I'm not sure I agree with you. Let's talk about it. That's fine. Um, but it's very rare for, I think for Christian reform Christians to do that in a healthy way about music. So, um, you know, there's this, uh, there's this, weird phenomena. I don't know the, the song oceans by Hillsong, um, which I, I think is, it's one of those songs that's like musically, it's kind of compelling, but when you actually think about like what the, what the song's communicating, it's just kind of vapid, nothing. It's like, right. And it's, it's a, it's a song about yourself it's nebulous. Um, and, and how much faith you're going to have. Um, and it, it just kind of sprinkled some spiritual language on top of it to make it sound less like that. And that, I mean, that's my take on the, the, the song. I'm sure there are people that would say it's like the most deep spiritual song they've ever heard and they're just wrong. But, um, 
until we're confronted a lot of times with a song like um, teach your heart to beat again. Like we, we, we hear that song and we're like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's just bad <laughs> theology. But we don't, we don't ever, I, I shouldn't say ever. We're very quick to do that with songs that are clearly bad theology, but we don't usually take time to really look at songs that we think are probably decent theology and assess them and be critical in a healthy way. So here's a really, um, a really good example. Hit me. So there's a song, um, You Are God Alone, right? It's by Philip Scrag and Dean, and, and it played on every contemporary music, uh, contemporary Christian sort of like um, encouraging music um, for, you know, middle-aged women, stay-at-home moms, target demographic stations. Um, it was it was KTIS in my hometown. It's I think it's called K-Love out here. There's that station that has the same format, the same demographic. And this song was hugely popular. And... Um, the problem is that Phillips, Craig, and Dean are modalists. They don't believe in the Trinity. They think that God is one person who appeared in three different ways throughout the course of history. And you can look at all of their faith statements on, unless they've unless they've cleared them off. But you can look at the faith statements on all of their websites and see that that is just an empirical fact, that they are modalists. They're not Orthodox Trinitarian Christians. Now, if you look at that song and you assess the lyrics in light of their presuppositions about who God is, it's a totally different song. It's no longer about Jesus. It's about this, this one God who is right on you know, high and magnified above all now that doesn't mean that the song is worthless when we sing it as trinitarians we can appropriate that um, we can appropriate that song and sing it in a genuine way but if you don't ever take a time to step back and really examine not just the song not just the lyrics that are presented to you but the presuppositions of the person writing the song and the understanding that is being communicated by that author um, we're very quick to look at the scripture and say well it's all about authorial intent or we look at um, we look at an article that we read online and we say well we have to understand what the author is trying to communicate which is good and right that's a good conservative way to read any sort of text. But then we look at a song, we're like, well, it's all about what it means to me. Right. It's all about how it makes me feel. And that's a fundamentally liberal way to look at a text. And so we, we apply these different standards to our music and to our worship than we do to a different part of our worship when we sit under the teaching of the word or when we study the scriptures. So I actually did that exercise um, at the last church I was at. I was teaching a systematic theology course and I played that song for the group. And I said, tell me what this song means. And they gave me all the answers about, you know, the father is high and magnified and Jesus has, um, Jesus has done this and that and the other thing. And there's, there's some just like weird theological squirrely issues in that song. But that aside, I said, now let's pretend that this song was written by a modalist. We just had gotten out of the Trinitarian section of the, the systematic lectures. I said, pretend that this song was written by a modalist. Tell me how the lyrics are different. And they kind of, they kind of looked at me a little funny, but they indulged me. And then I said, guess what? The song was written by a modalist. I said, are you comfortable singing this on Sunday? Because I have a feeling that the worship team is going to do this song on Sunday. And it was just this sort of like hush that came over the room where it was like, holy cow, have, have, we, been, have we been singing to a Unitarian God this whole time and not realizing it? And the answer is, unless we're intentionally not singing to a Unitarian God, we may have been. We may have been singing lyrics that aren't appropriate to sing to our triune God uh, because we didn't take time to think about it. And this may sound like a lot of work to the average person. Like you're asking me to weigh out every single thing that I see on the PowerPoint on a Sunday morning or every single thing in the hymnal in front of me. 
Right. But I think what we're basically suggesting is that there is a need to be thoughtful and to really be discerning about it. And that goes for both worship leaders and lay leaders in that ministry because the worship leader or the pastor, those who are actually picking out the music or picking out the expressions of liturgy, they are literally putting words in people's mouth with which to praise God. And you as a participant, and hopefully not just a consumer, like you're saying, that worship isn't just meant to satisfy your every felt need. But if you are a true participant, it's like writing a blank check if you're you're not going to actually do the investigative work. Something which I think God finds pleasing because that says to him, we take it seriously. We are willing and, and want to worship you in the way in which you prescribe. And we're not willing to take any other substitute because there's no doubt that of all the things in life, in this temporal space that we could worship, everything except God gets crushed under its own weight when it gets worshiped. Right. So we really are making a stance to say, we want to do this the right way. And I think if you reach out to your elders, you speak with your pastor about that kind of thing, that that is going to be an immensely fruitful conversation that doesn't need to be necessarily confrontational so much as saying, I I just have a heart to seek after the Lord, like David did, in a way that's going to be truly pleasing to him. Yeah. And I think too, like you and I, and we'll, we're going to run out of time, but you and I are both involved in helping out with the musical worship at our churches. And, you know, I, I don't have any, I don't know about you, but I don't have any role in picking out the music. I, I come downstairs on a Sunday and I pick up the bulletin and I see what Ashley, who is, you know, in charge of facilitating worship at our church, um, I pick up the bulletin and see what she's picked. And then I pick it out of the songbook and I, you know, I get my guitar ready to go and And that's fine with me. If, if, if I really wanted to be involved, I probably could be. I just, that's not my passion. Um, but there have been times where, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with um, Jesus culture songs, a little bit uncomfortable with them because I know what's happening at Bethel and Reading. And I know, I know, like I said earlier, I know the presuppositions that are going into those songs. And so we sing um, the song Holy Spirit um, by Jesus culture. And when we, first started doing that song, there was a, p- a moment where I was kind of like, I'm not sure I'm okay with this, but we talked about it and we looked at the lyrics and I read through them and I took the time to actually read them and say, all right, is there anything in here that I'm really uncomfortable with? Um, it's funny because there's, you know, Ashley picks out like a list of, she's got a, a playlist of songs that plays over the, the music system before the service. And there was one song that the the, I don't know who wrote it, so I don't know anything about the presuppositions, but it just was straight up modalism in the way that it was communicating about God. It started out praising the Father for this and that and the other thing, and then out of nowhere, it just shifts over to, and then you came down to die on the cross, like all in the same breath. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second here. Um, you know, when a pastor is praying publicly and he starts out by praying to the Father and sort of loses his place and says, in your name, amen, like that's just a slip of the tongue. That's right, not anything. Exactly. But when you're talking about a worship song that's being repeated, that people are singing and proclaiming to God, that that is intentional and writing a song is hard. It's not it like really you, hard. it's not like you just throw words on a piece of paper and then, you know, go to the studio and record it. Like it's a process that takes a lot of time. Um, and you pour over those lyrics and you look over them multiple times and you sing them and you have to figure out how the music fits. That took a long time before it slipped, you know, slipped in there. And it, probably what happened is this person's just not theologically informed enough to recognize how really terrible that theology is. I'm sure it wasn't I'm sure she's not intending to be a modalist. I'm sure the person who wrote it 
just didn't didn't realize what they were doing. But that kind of reflects that, like, if you're going to be if you're going to be engaging in in, and that might be an argument for exclusive solemnity. And that's exactly. kind of, that's what I was just going to say. That's exactly. kind of where they go with it. Is like, well, why would we trust man-made compositions? Right. Um, but again, it's not it's not about us determining what the best way to worship is. It's not about us saying like, well, psalms are safer or they're better, they are safer and they are better than anything we could write. But it's about how has God commanded us to worship him. If he's mm-hmm. commanded us to worship him only singing psalms, great. If he's commanded us to, to worship him using song, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that involves composition, then we need to do that too. But we need to do it well and with excellence. Exactly. There's absolutely an argument for the fact that God has given us discerning and creative minds and to apply that in such a way that still honors him. But you're right. I was thinking the same thing. Like that is a very cogent argument for exclusive, you know, somnity that it, it just makes sense that because the stakes are so high here and they are, we're definitely saying that it's really worth considering that it would just make more sense. We know that God is pleased with the use of his word in a way that where there's high fidelity, both in music and in preaching. So I actually uh, do have the, both the privilege and the, I think really solemn responsibility of picking out music when uh, I am leading and there's a rotation in our body, which takes turns doing that. And it's tough. Those weeks are fall heavy on me because I do think it is a pretty uh, important mantle. And so I do try to spend a lot of time over prayer over those pieces and to be very deliberate, not just making sure that they match the theme of the morning, but there is a, an arc in presenting the gospel that there's a zenith which we're focusing on in the midst of all those pieces that we're picking and that they are really sound because the last thing I want to do is be in a place where when I stand before the Lord in judgment, that he holds me accountable for essentially in a small way authorizing strange fire by just not being deliberate, by not really seeking after him and making that a priority. So absolutely. It's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. It is. Well, I think we could probably go for another hour um, on this subject, and so maybe we'll have to come back and pick it up again another another yeah, night. We're just um, getting started up. Like we need some like DVD extras here, like the stuff that didn't make it in. Except like we don't chip, do any editing. The chipmunk, uh, the chipmunk theologian. <laughs> um, so why don't you why don't you hit me before we close it out tonight? Why don't you hit me with your recommendation for kind of like. If you had to recommend a worship, I'm totally putting you on the spot. Maybe you're going to be like, I don't know. But no, if you had to me. recommend like a worship CD or a, a, like a, a Spotify artist that you could go to for like your favorite worship music, uh, who would you say? So let me share one that I've come across recently. I think this is, I'm going to bridge the gap here that just totally unseparate the divide. This is for the exclusive Somnity people <laughs> and everybody else as well. I, have you heard of this? Uh, it's not a new group, but they just released an album this year. My Soul Among Lions. Are you familiar with I that? I have not. No. So they just released this album called Psalms 1 through 10, where they've literally done just that. They've taken each psalm, and it's kind of in this wonderful like folk style, like somewhere between like a really stripped down like Need to Breathe or Mumford and & Sons and Wren Collective. Okay. But they go through and they've essentially recasted these psalms, but use the exclusive, some of the language and of course the exclusive themes of those songs and, and written music to them. They're beautiful. Like they're glorious. So my soul among lions is one that I would recommend. Okay. Do you have one in particular? 
I do. So one of my favorite uh, worship, and they're not a worship band, but um, one of the one of my favorite bands that produces some really good worship music is Shane and Shane. Um, and oh, yeah, Shane classic. and Shane, um, they they initially started out as part of the same ministry that Matt Chandler did. Um, so you hear a lot of their influence and a lot of his influence on them. And so I think um, they have a couple Psalms albums. Um, they have a couple just sort of worship music albums. Um, they tend to compose kind of modern day hymns. So Before the Throne, I believe they wrote that. I could be mistaken, um, but they're kind of the big name that I think of when I think of that song, at least. Um, and they just have some really good stuff. You can get all of it on Spotify, and, and I'll, I'll try to dig up some links if I have time between uh, cleaning up puppy diarrhea uh, to, <laughs> to look up some of these uh, some of these uh, links. Um, so I'll have to go back and figure out what that band that you just said is. But um, yeah, Shane and Shane, I think it's just phenomenal. And the exclusive Salmon movie people are not going to be happy with your recommendation, by the way. Um, unless it's the 1650 <laughs> Scottish metrical, you're, you're a pagan, you're a heathen. You might as well get that Strange Fire out of here. Yeah, that's true. I think the name of their album is actually called Strange Fire. So it should be, everybody, yeah. yeah. Everybody well, then, And we didn't even talk about it, but John MacArthur totally misappropriating that passage in his conference oh. about about the charismatic gifts that that is a regulative principle normative principle thing but uh, he just that conference was just so poorly named i think it was um, it was absolutely wild I he should have he should have just um pulled up that clip from braveheart where he's like what are you gonna do and and william Wallace is like i'm here to pick a fight that was like the worst <laughs> irish accent ever so no that was that was fantastic your impressions are definitely definitely coming along pretty well between yeah. that and Aaron was great. Yeah, that's good. Ooh. Ooh. So um, if if you want to get a hold of us online, uh, you can email us at Ooh. reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us. Uh, you can join the two and a half people that have followed us on Twitter at reformedbrohood. Uh, and you can find us on Google+. Plus which is still a thing. Yeah, Google Plus. Um, and you can also uh, follow us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash reformbrotherhood. We also have a website, but there's nothing there except podcasts. So if you're listening to this, you don't need to go there. Um, and share us and recommend us to a friend and review us on iTunes. Uh, that helps other people find us. Uh, it helps us uh, feel like we're not completely wasting our time. Um, and it just is a good thing to do. So, Jesse, do you have any closing words of wisdom as the uh, elder brother here? Yeah, all I want to say to myself and to everybody is take this week, and especially on the Lord's Day, take some time to think about the things that you're singing. So often we're on autopilot, so I think what I drew from a lot of this conversation is it best the best way to do this is just start with thinking about what you're singing, being mindful and taking that time to actually work it out as your lips are moving and uh, your voice is going strong, it's, I think it's going to be a fruitful journey. So start there. How about you, Tony? Uh, I don't think I can top that. Uh, I don't think that anything you said needs to be elaborated on. So I think we can call it a week. And uh, if you are hearing this, then go and worship God in the way that he's commanded. Is the mic drop regulative or normative principle? Uh, I don't think it is normative. I think it's regulative. And God said, drop that mic. All right. See you next week. <laughs>